0: Well, as Paul mentioned, my wife is home. She actually worked last night, uh, but Lexi is sick. She woke me up at 4 a.m. and was like, Dad, I'm not feeling well. So who knows what's happening there. Um, so I've got to take Lexi to the doctor this afternoon. But, well, um, for the last about three months, I've been going to see a chiropractor. And I've been seeing him regularly because I, I learned that I had this, like, repeating static issue in my back. And one of the ways I've had to stay on top of that is by seeing the chiropractor regularly. And uh, because of that, I've had to cut back my running, which is a bummer. So I'm a little kind of sore today because I ran like a mile and a half yesterday. But I see this chiropractor on about 84th and I-25, if you all know, you all know where that is. And that location is, is, is of interest to me because when I was a kid, we went to this church uh, just kind of on the south would be the south, I should have thought of this, the southwest corner, I believe, kind of of, of that area. It was then called Mountain States Baptist Church, and now it's, it's the building still, still there, that church is since relocated, but the, the church that's meeting there now is called, I think, Fountain of, Fountain of Life Community Church, I think. Um, but back, in, back when I was a kid, uh, there's the church there, and they also operate a Christian school out of the, out of the building. And the school closed down, I think, roughly in, like, 1992. Um, so, as it was, um, my sisters and I attended the school the last year of its existence. Um, so, you know, obviously they're having some struggles, but it seemed like, obviously, before that time, they're doing fairly well, at least at one point. They had a pretty big building. They had, like, a, they had a parcel of land and... and um, that they want to build a gym, gym on someday, and a pretty, pretty decent-sized campus. So every time I'm at my chiropractor, um, he's at this, it's this white building just off 84th and I-25, next to the Village Inn, if you know where that is. So he has this office, and every time I'm in there, I, I look out the back window, and I can see, right just a block away, that church kind of up on the hill. So I can look out, and I can see the, the big parking lot, and I can see the the big parcel of land that they wanted to build a gym on someday, and, and a little further back you know, they had um, just this little corner plot of land that they had a, a little playground on when I was a kid. And further back, I think around the corner, they actually had, they actually owned a house or two, because back in the day churches did that, they owned houses and they called them parsonages. Um, so one day I decided, you know, let me, let me get in the car, let me drive by um, that school of that church building. So I got up, uh, got in my car, and I drove a little ways up the block, and I was, I was kinda surprised at, at, um, at the rush of emotions that flooded me as I, as I went up the street. And I quickly just t- turned the corner and left just about as quickly as I would come up. And uh, my sisters and I, only, we only attended that school for about a year, or a year actually. And I, and I don't know if about for my sister, but for me at least, my time there really left an, an indelible mark on me as, as a human being. And um, so the story goes that um, back, in, back in around that time, 1991, 1992, something like that, my family had just moved here from Colorado, or here to Colorado, from New York City. Um, my dad was a pastor in New York City, and uh, his church had merged with another church, and we lived in what was called. The church parsonage which is the house that the church owned. So for so for reasons that to this day I still do not understand uh, we had to leave the church parsonage and um, so I think our only really affordable option at this point was to to move to Colorado where my mom's parents were from. Um, so uh, you know being, being new to the area uh, from a relatively low-income family, and my sisters and I were not the most social, <laughs> grarious. what's the word, uh, gregarious people. We were kind of in a vulnerable, uh, vulnerable spot, you know, sitting ducks in a way. And I think that combined with just like this, this kind of free fall of this school, the infrastructure of this, this school, if you will, really left us just in a tough spot, my sisters and I, um, facing a lot of uh, bullying, and I remember, I think it was, I think I was there for fourth grade and I had three teachers my fourth grade year, if you can imagine. A lot of turnover, a lot of turnover, a lot of changes as things were kind of just, to be honest, kind of imploding. And uh, yeah, even this is the, this is the building here. Uh, I got this off Google, so it's not a great shot. But if you can imagine off to the, off to the edge of the screen, there's a parcel of land that was going to be a gym. Um, and then farther back, there's this playground, um, that doesn't exist anymore, but, yeah, even, even as I kind of, like, look at, as I was kind of looking at this yesterday, um, there's, like, spots I can point out to, like, where it wasn't a lot of fun, I guess I'd say, growing up, and, yeah, I thought about whether I wanted to share it, but I don't, so <laughs> I'm not gonna, and, um, but uh, it's, this is not what this this is meant to be about. I, I want to talk just about kind of share this, um, but you know these were this these these were these feelings that were stirred up with me um, that day as I was driving past the campus and really like each time I look out from my chiropractor 's office like I, I see that this like this is almost exactly what I see um, and I, it always brings back those memories each and every time I look at it um, so obviously. Since then, I've really, you know, been into like anti-bullying efforts and and uh, really try to learn more about bullying and what we as a society can do to work on bullying and prevent bullying. Um, and as I've learned, bullying really most often has to do with a with a um, an imbalance of power. Basically, certain people have access to power such as strength, um, resources, power, popularity whatever, there's an imbalance of power, and as, and as much as we think of like bullying as being associated with school, we often see uh, bullying in other contexts of life, like work, on the web, certainly, and in, in society at large. We're laughing because we, we know what you're talking about. And um, I know Nellis was talking about bullying in society at large a little bit last week, but what, what I want to talk about today isn't so much bullying itself, it's rather uh, it's not the, not, the, not the target of the bully or the bully itself, but rather those who witness the bullying. So there's this book that I, I read a while back called The Bully at Work, and I'd, I'd recommend it. And the authors Gary and Ruth Namey, I think, they spend a, a significant amount of time writing about those who witness the bullying and, and why when people in the workplace, why when they witness bullying to a coworker colleague, they don't do anything about it. And why that is. So the author has presumed three reasons of why this takes place. They think, well, maybe one is, you know, I witness someone being bullied and I think, you know, that person must just be doing something to deserve that bullying. Or, you know, um, no one else is doing anything, so I guess I don't need to do anything since no one else is doing anything. Or, um, I don't want to get bullied myself, right? It's a self-preservation measure, like... If, if that person is bullying that other person and I step in, the bully might turn in and start bullying me. But I think in, in all these three situations that the author talk about, to, to my, in my perspective, there's something else going on inherent in that, like beneath the surface that kind of undergirds all that, um, those three reasons. And, and to me at least, it's that witnesses to bullying have a power in their own right, and going up against a bigger, more powerful bully threatens their own power and risks them becoming the target of the safety. It's kind of like the classic like, mob boss scenario. I don't know what your favorite like, kind of mob boss movie is, Godfather, whatever, any kind of, any kind of movie like that. The, the scenario is basically the same, right? There's, like, there's this powerful mob boss who's the ultimate power player, got all the power, all he's the bully. But in those situations, there's, there's politicians, there's police officers, there's business leaders who are, in, who are in some positions of power and influence. And part of, that, part of the reason they have that power is because uh, their power is tied to an acceptance or an acquiescence to the power of the bully. So if, if the business leader or the politician or the, the police officer were confront that bully mob boss their own power or influence might be threatened. And, you know, the small business owner might see like another business owner getting shaken down, or, you know, the politician might see another candidate like mysteriously drop out of the race, or, um, you know, the the, um, the police officer might see someone just like disappear and end up dead. and And that's kind of how these things happen. But, so again, the witness, they're witnesses of bullying, and they're not necessarily the bully, but they kind of acquiesce or accept the bullying so they can maintain their power. And thankfully, we don't live in a real-life version of The Sopranos, right? Anyone a Sopranos fan? I can honestly say I've never seen an episode, so, you know. I'm not very, like, soci- uh very, like, culturally aware, so forgive me. <laughs> Again, growing up, being in Mountain States Baptist Church, you know, you can imagine like my family not big on, not big on the Sopranos. How do you say it? Sopranos, Sopranos, potato, potato, right? Um, so I, I, I think in many ways, like we often find ourselves as onlookers of bullying, mistreatment, or harassment, and we see it, I think, so often on a regular recurrence. And I think like this book talks about, we find ourselves uncertain or, or, or unsure of what we can do to, to, to address the bullying. So, I mean, that, it begs the question, what can we do then? So I want to talk about this, that again this morning. And we're in the last week of this message series we've been calling Unheard Of, and we've been talking about the story of Jesus right after his birth when uh, King Herod and the wise men... Come, or the wise men, at least, come visit him. And King Herod's, so we've been talking about um, the first week I talked about Joseph, kind of his perspective in the story. Two weeks ago, uh, Paul talked about Herod. Last week, Nellis talked about Mary's perspective, perspective in the story. And this week, I'm talking about the wise men, or the magi, as they're sometimes called. And. Um, so just so it's fresh in our minds, I know we've, we've read it before, but let's go ahead and, and read it. I'm going to read uh, Matthew 2, 1 through 2. We'll have it on the screen here. I like reading it from the text. I saw a statistic actually recently that um, e-readers have kind of come and gone because people like flipping pages still. Interesting. So Matthew 2, chapter or Matthew 2. Chapter, chapter 2. Verses 1 through 2, we'll start. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the territory of Judea during the rule of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem. They asked, Where is this newborn king, king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east, and we've come to honor him. Let's skip down to verse 7. Then Herod secretly called for the Magi and found out from them the time when the star had first appeared... He sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search carefully for the child. When you found him, report to me so that I, I may too go and honor him. So when they, when they the magi, when they, the, the wise men heard the king, they went and looked. The star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stood over the place where the child was. They saw the star there filled with joy. Hey, we found what we're looking for. So they came and they entered the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, falling to their knees. They honored him. Then they opened their treasure chest and presented him with gold, gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. And then this is the the verse I want us to focus on today. Lastly, in verse 12, it says, because they're warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they went back to their own country by another route. Now be, now before we uh, get too far, we should talk about a couple things about the Magi, or the wise men. Now first thing is, um, despite the presence of, of wise men at most of our nativity scenes, wise men probably weren't actually at uh, the birth of baby Jesus in Bethlehem. They probably came to see him in Nazareth. So that's the first thing. Second thing we should know is, we don't really know there was only three wise men. We just think... We just get the number three number because there's what? The gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So there might have been more than three, could have been less than three, we don't know. Uh, but you know, there was some wise men or magi or, or kings as they're sometimes called. And then a lot of scholars think, that uh, thirdly, that a lot of scholars think that these wise men were from the, somewhere in the east, perhaps Persia or modern day Iran. So there's your little lesson on who the wise men or the magi were. So one thing I think, we, I think we can say, perhaps with some certainty, is that the wise man or the magi had some access to power and resources, whether their own resources or from another person. I mean, you know, we've all traveled, right, like traveling long distance is not cheap. Not cheap. I want to go on vacation this summer. I'm like, you've got to be within driving distance, right, because flying is not cheap. And you've got to imagine those old camels, like, you know, it's not cheap. Um, so, you know, traveling was not cheap. They, they apparently had the freedom and time to, like, sit around and study the ancient, ancient texts. So that, that suggests some kind of freedom and, and uh, power or resources of their own. And then I think also, like, they knew to come and talk to King Herod. So to me, that tells me, like, they had some comfort and familiarity with interacting with, like, powerful people. So to me, like, that's, that's a resource. That's, that's some kind of power they had. And they certainly weren't the most powerful people in the room when they went and talked to Herod. I mean, uh, Paul, two weeks ago, talked about what a, what a wonderful dude Herod was. Um, they had some power and resources when they entered that room. And again, like Paul talked about, Herod was definitely the bully in the room. He was not any kind of nice guy. And one thing uh, experts will talk about, about bullies is they like to be in control of everything. And I think Herod was a great example of that. He wanted to be in control of the entire situation. If we look at the story in verse 1, the magi know enough to come and talk to Herod about the newborn king because he was recognized as an authority. In verse 7, after King Herod had apparently sent the magi away, Herod says, come on back. I want to talk to you again. And then in verse, in verse 9, uh, Herod tells them to go, and they, they go. So from, from my perspective, Herod was the bully, and he was doing everything in his power to control the situation. And, and what was that last act of control by Herod? Right? He says, hey, after you've seen Jesus, come back and tell me what, what happened, where he is, so I can go worship him. But we know what happens, right? They don't. After being warned in a dream, the Magi go back home by a different route. Now again, as, as, Paul, uh, as Paul mentioned a couple weeks ago, and you can go back and watch this on YouTube if you missed it, uh, Herod had no intentions of like, going on like, their target registry and getting them a gift. Like, that was not in his wheelhouse. It was not part of his plan. And, I mean, he was going to do anything it took to preserve his power. So, to me, like, I think about how easy it would have been for the magi just to simply do what Herod had asked them to do, to come back and report what they had seen. I mean, think about it. They would just be doing what they were told, Like they didn't know who the new baby was. I mean, maybe Herod was being honest and, and maybe if they didn't tell Herod, Herod would come after them. I mean, they, they were all, what, they were guests in a foreign land, and, and maybe if they didn't tell Herod, Herod would, uh, you know, dispatch a search party to come after them, you know, find them at a checkpoint, whatever, and they'd be apprehended and imprisoned. I think it's easy for us to say, like, oh, they did the obvious thing, and they, they went by another route, they went home by another route. Like, to me, the obvious thing would just be go back and say, "Hey, we found him. He's over there. See you later. We're going home. I'm going to wash my hands of the whole thing. Like, not my problem. I did, I did, you know, God's going to take care of it. I did my thing. That would have been the obvious thing, I think, to me. But they didn't do that. And in, in not doing that, they risked their lives, their resources, perhaps even their freedom. It could have cost them something. You know, they, they were risking themselves, it cost them something, and I, I think this is why doing the right thing is often so hard, because it costs us something. You know, I think, I think it's fair to say that all of us in this room, and some more than others, have some measure of power and a privilege, whether it's because of our, our sexuality, our, our skin color, our gender, um, our financial status. Or perhaps a combination of these things. We have a certain amount of power and privilege and resources that other people don't have. And yeah, I want to be fair and say that uh, your power or your privilege or your resources might not seem like much. But again, I, I think of it at least, like I kind of think of it like the, cl- the classic like schoolyard bully scenario. Like maybe at least you're not the one being bullied right now. And at that, at that minimum, like that, that gives you more power and more freedom, more resources than the one being bullied at this moment. And I think, I think when we realize that, like, it leaves us with a choice: is like, what are we going to do with that power, with that privilege? I mean, we're not the bully. No, we are not the bully, but we're afraid that we might become the bullied. Like, if we try and stop the bully, we might we might lose our position of privilege. We might lose our power. We might lose our safety. I mean, do you, do you think when the Magi woke that morning after seeing the baby Jesus, having the dream, do you think they woke up and thought to themselves these same questions? But I believe they did the right thing because they were willing to risk their power and their privilege and their safety. What I want to tell you this morning is to be like the magi whether at school whether at work whether in society at large be like the magi and maybe maybe you're like hey you know what like turning around and going the other way that's not going to do much but again I, i think so much of bullying is about power and control like showing others like that i'm the big bully i'm the boss you should be scared of me like, the bully wants you to see them overpowering their victim, and they want you to know that you can, I can do the same thing to you. So when we turn around and walk away, you're like, you're like saying, I'm not scared of you, bully. You don't have control over me. And I think about my own situations back at that school, and I wondered, like, what if someone had just walked away? Like if someone had just said, like, nah, I don't want any part in this. Like, would the rest of the group have lost their will? Like, might things have ended up differently? I mean, I wonder. Like, yeah. That's what I wonder. And I think, yes. Like, in some context, walking away is not, not the best thing to do. Or the only thing to do. But the point is that we can do something, because if we don't do something, the bully will come for us. The bully will come for us. A couple weeks ago, I was uh, brainstorming ideas for this message with another pastor, and he talked about uh, this old James Taylor, anybody familiar with James Taylor? This old James Taylor... Uh... <laughs> Some love for James Taylor. It's a little James Taylor song called Home by Another Way. Again, I'm not very socially, culturally adept, so I'm like, who is James Taylor? But I want to read you the words of the song because I think uh, it speaks powerfully. kind of talks about this, the Magi visiting baby Jesus and the whole whole thing. Uh, So James Taylor writes, I'm not going to sing it. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. He writes, those magic men, the Magi, some people call them wise or oriental even kings, well, anyway, they, these guys, they visited with Jesus, they sure enjoyed their stay, then warned in a dream of king's Herod's scheme, they went home by another way. It goes on in the third stanza to say, steer clear of royal welcomes, avoid a big to-do, a king who would slaughter the innocents will not cut a deal for you. He'll really, really want those presents. He'll comb your camel's fur until his boys announced they found trace amounts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It's that line in there that stands out to me. A king who would slaughter the innocents will not cut a deal for you. I couldn't help but think about, uh, perhaps you're familiar with the old poem by a German Lutheran pastor, and I'm going to try to say his name right, Martin Neymuller. He writes for the, and this was kind of written in the, the Nazi Germany era. He writes, first they came for the socialists. I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. And then they came for the trade unionists, but I didn't say anything because I wasn't a trade unionist. And they came for the, for the Jews, but I did not speak out for the Jews because I wasn't a Jew. And they came for me, but there wasn't anyone to speak out for me. I think it's, it's so easy. It is so very easy for those of us with access to power and to privilege because of our gender, our sexuality, our financial status, whatever, to not want to do anything to risk that privilege and endanger ourselves. Like, and on some levels, we can justify it as, as self-preservation. Like. I'm a dad, right? I have two kids. Two young kids. Like, like we've, got, we've got bills to pay. We've got kids to feed. Like, I get it. But this is the thing. A king who would slaughter the innocents won't cut a deal for us. Each and every day, each and every day I believe we have the opportunity, whether in big ways or in small, do not discount the small things because small things add up. And when there's enough small things add up, those small things added together add up to more than the big thing of the bully. But each and every day we have an opportunity to do the right thing to care for the vulnerable to welcome the foreigner to help those in need just as Jesus did and just as Jesus asked us to do and I believe Jesus continues to ask us to do this is from Matthew 25:45. Jesus says I assure you that what you have done for the, one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine you have done it for me and speaking of Jesus, I mean, the guy went up against a pretty powerful bully in his own right, right? Pontius Pilate, if you remember him. His own life threatened; he would not relent. I Man, it did cost him everything, right? But we know that's not the end of the story. And this is, I believe, what following the way of Jesus is ultimately about. When we sacrifice, we gain. When we lose, we win. Even when we die, we are born again. Let's pray.